Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. All right, here, 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 here. Look, it's an annual event. <laughs> it's like Christmas. Oh, yeah. please. It, and ho, it, ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. And it's his birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. To Dennis Palumbo, who you must know by now, you regulars, because uh, every year he writes another book. And well, every year we have him on, although he was just telling me he's... Uh, well, I don't know about the next one. You I, really don't? No, I might don't. Might it be done? I, it, it might be, but I don't know. I, I usually tell myself, well, that's it, because that, this is the fifth book. And I think, well, that's it. And then I'll be in the shower or something. I'll go, well, what would happen if someone <laughs> did? You know, and the moment I do that, I'm stuck. <laughs> it looks like I have to do it then. Okay. He's got, f this is number five in a series uh, following the exploits of forensic psychologists. Yes, he, uh, Daniel Rinaldi is a clinical psychologist, and more importantly, he's a trauma expert, and so he consults with the Pittsburgh police. Uh, his job, essentially, is to treat victims of violent crime, people who may have survived uh, the home invasion or the sexual assault or the carjacking, but they've been traumatized by the experience. And I think in a lot of crime novels and on television shows, we, we follow the crime, we go after the criminal, but we don't pay too much attention to the victims. And the reality is most people, even if they've survived, let's say, uh, an armed bank robbery, they're traumatized for months and years afterwards, and they have many of the symptoms we associate with PTSD. Uh, they'll have eternal vigilance about violence. They'll be afraid uh, every time they hear a twig snap. They'll have recurring nightmares about the event. And so I wanted my hero to have a mission, which would be to treat those people. And so in the beginning of the series, we're in the fifth book now, in the very beginning of the series, we realize or we find out that years prior, he and his wife had been coming out of a restaurant. They get mugged. Gunfire erupts. His wife is killed. Daniel Rinaldi's injured, but he survives. As a result, he has survivor guilt, which is something that a lot of people who are in horrible events, like the gun shootings we've been seeing lately and stuff, as horrible as it is for the victims and the families of the victims, People who survive often have survivor guilt. Why am I alive and the person next to me That's right. dies? And so my hero, Daniel Rinaldi, felt that. And as a result, his mission is to treat victims of violent crime. Now, he's also uh, an amateur sleuth, as you are in these kinds of novels. And so he gets, uh, inevitably, he gets involved oh, yeah. in these high-profile cases uh, much to the chagrin of the police department with whom he has a contract, but they don't like him very much. Right, right. And so he's always at odds with them. And they really don't like him because he ends up getting so involved, he gets kind of a reputation. He ends up being one of those talking heads you see on CNN and stuff. He's getting more attention than they and are. he's getting more attention than they are. So they're always looking for a way to, to cancel his contract, you know, or, or as they say, punch his ticket. Um, but of course, he's also—he's always showing them up. Well, he—he's always showing them up. He has a lot of respect because his dad was a cop. He has a lot of respect for the police department and a grudging relationship with a number of detectives. But the head of robbery homicide, Lieutenant Bigler, is a real enemy of his and yes. wants to get rid of him. And so the tension of all those characters for me is the fun part. The other. Part of writing the book I like is is that they, all the books take place in Pittsburgh, my hometown, and uh, I think of Pittsburgh itself as a character because it's undergone such a change. Really, yeah. It really, really has. I mean, uh, my longtime readers know I talk about this all the time, but I think of of Pittsburgh as a shot in a beer town that's collided with the information age. True. And you know, the steel mills I worked at when I was working my way through Pitt are all gone now. Yeah. And so the city has undergone this strange uh, metamorphosis, and my hero has a foot in the old world and a foot in the new. Well, and it's just perfect. That's why I have to tell you, I think um, you must have a huge readership here because, I mean, not only are 
you know, the plots, you know, whatever, they, they keep you in, in, enthralled and entranced and on edge. But, but it's so much fun to be able to see uh, everything because you know the town. Well, that's the thing is I, 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 I like to think I know the town, though I have to tell you it's no, really funny. I, I get a lot of emails and letters from people, my Pittsburgh readers, and nobody ever talks about the characters or the plot. They always say, you know, you can't make a left on South Street. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and, or and, you can't see the Cathedral yes, of Learning from, from that, that building. Yes, they always what, tell what me. What the hell are you? Yeah, right. But the most interesting one I got is from a city planner. Uh, she had read the first three books. Uh, uh, three had come out at that point and she sent me an email said i really like your books but my hero has uh, an office on forbes avenue right. in oakland right. and he lives in mount washington and so she wrote me and said i'm a city planner and the way you have daniel rinaldi go home from his office is so ridiculous i can't <laughs> read it anymore so she sent me a diagram of, of how, how he, he should go. actually go and so i used it in the next book and i gave her an acknowledgement in the beginning of the book for Thanks to, and I, I won't say her name here, but thanks for showing Daniel Rinaldi the best way to go, go home. home. And I use that now. Well, now wait, what would it be? So from Forbes, you would go to. Um, well, he, I, I had him. I you have to the go across the Liberty, Liberty Bridge. Bridge. Yeah, right, and I, right. I think I had him going across. Oh, the I Portrait know. Bridge, you and then do I had it him, yeah. to go to the Boulevard yeah, of the Allies yeah. to the Liberty Bridge. And, and you yeah, know, right. you have yeah. to remember, I haven't lived in Pittsburgh <laughs> for over 40 years, so I'm working <laughs> Google Maps, and a friend of mine here in town, I'll call him and go, is the William Penn Hotel still there? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's a student union, Yes, right? yes, yes. Oh, no, wait, is that now, student no, union? No, no, no. Uh, oh, this one, yeah, William this Penn one. here. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is, isn't it? Yeah, in fact, I at Pitt, you know, when I was at Pitt, I mean, the student union else. was called the student union. Now it's called something else. I don't even it know is? what it is. Yeah. I was so pleased that the Hillman Library is still called the Hillman Library. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, even those of us who live here can't keep up at I know. Time. I know. And uh, so I, I, I'm always pleased when uh, a Pittsburgh reader uh, emails me or calls me or anything, and they're not telling me what I did wrong, you know, about the city. Hey, your next one, you should have an... Uh, a rider, uh, a driverless uh, uh, Uber oh, uh, car go, uh, like, be hacked and yeah. go berserk, yeah. right? Something like that. Well, you know, it's so funny. Everyone, you know, rightfully so, is upset because the that driverless car hit yeah, that woman. woman. And I was thinking about it flying here from L.A. because most planes, they're flown by automatic They can pilots. be hacked! Not only that, they, they're flown by automatic pilots. The pilots are sitting so there what talking are the, to each other. So what's the pilot doing? Yeah, yeah so right. the point is we, we've been using a lot of autopilots right, right, for that's years. That's true. You know. That's true. Uh, I think they just take off and land, I think. I think that's pretty much true. I think true. that's it. And so you can't be, it's hard to be vigilant if you're sitting there, but you're really not doing anything. Yeah. I mean, they say, well, we have a human being in the driver's seat, but... They're not doing anything, and then they're supposed to, though, be so on top of it that they can take action in a split second. Yeah, and also, if a human driver were driving, apparently this woman just stepped out in front of the road. Yeah. Well, a human driver wouldn't have been able to stop either. Either. So I think you have to take a little of this with a grain no, of salt. No, my, my sense is, is that, uh, yeah, she seemed to be at fault. But I don't uh, know. What do we know? But we got the, you know, the camera. Well, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay, so I ha every year I must ask you the same questions over and over and over again, and I'm going to do it again. With my memory, that works great because well, they're always they're always new to me. Okay, so we have now uh, we've you are a Pittsburgh native, um, but I have to get your your incredible sort of professional arc. Um, what brought you to writing books like this? Um, we got to get that down okay. on the on the record because absolutely, um, you, absolutely. you were the screenwriter for one of my favorite movies. Well, that's right. I my mean, favorite year, which I just saw recently. Oh my again. goodness! God, it's good. Thank you so much. I was so the co-writer of my favorite year with Norman Steinberg, and I would say both of us agree that it was actually Peter O'Toole who made that film as great as it is. Well, he was amazing. He was wonderful. But it wasn't just him. The, oh, my God, I loved everybody in that movie. I think we were very lucky we got a great cast. Oh. And I think it really, really, uh, the cast helped us a great deal. Um, yeah, I, it, just to give a quick two-minute bio, I, I, I went to Pitt, and then I came out to California. Graduated in? 
what? Uh, English, English, yeah, English? in English. I was an uh, I was an English major, but there was also a writing uh, uh, department, and uh, I had those wonderful teachers: Lee Gutkin, Montgomery Culver, all those great Pitt teachers. Gee, Lee's a friend of mine. Oh, I didn't I, know he was. A, he oh, was yeah. your teacher? Yes. He was oh, the, he won't want to hear that because oh, he likes to he likes to say he's younger than I am, and no, he ain't. No, 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 he I isn't. Know, he was I a know. teacher when I was there. In <laughs> fact, we're still we're still friends. Okay, so, okay, yeah, hey, Lee. Um, but anyway, and I came out to Los Angeles and I was very lucky and uh, ended up um, writing on Welcome Back Cotter. Uh, I wrote the first episode of Love Boat. Whenever I tell people that, oh my God. they always laugh and then I say, yeah, but I just got a 13 cent residual <laughs> check from the Balkans, you know, so so who's laughing now, you know, <laughs> the joke's on you. You're still, really, are you seriously yeah. still getting? I still get these oh, little 13, funny. 12 cent residual checks from all over Europe. It's that hilarious. Is so funny. And then, you know, I, I moved into movies. I did, uh, uh, as we talked about, my favorite year, a movie called uh, K9 with Jim Belushi and a movie called Whitewater Summer with uh, Sean Astin and Kevin Bacon. I was very, very lucky. And then, you know, it's so ironic. What happened is I went into therapy myself. And uh, <laughs> as a patient in therapy, I fell in love with the process. So I started taking classes. I started volunteering in psych hospitals, not thinking, oh, I'm going to change my career. I kept telling myself, well, for a writer, how bad can it be taking psychology classes? It right. can only help me as yeah. a writer. Right. Next thing you know, I end up getting my graduate degree. I start getting intern hours and I'm thinking am I really doing this am I really doing this and then one day I was still in film and television but nobody knew I was in school I was like Batman by day I was a screenwriter and by night and on the weekends I was going to class and I was seeing patients as a, an intern therapist and and one day I was having lunch with this producer at a, a restaurant on Sunset, and he was trying to get me to write this movie. And I kept looking at my watch because I didn't want to be late for getting down to the psych hospital. I was doing group psychotherapy with schizophrenics. Oh, my God. And I was driving down La Cienica on my way down there, and I thought to myself, I couldn't wait to leave the lunch to get down to the psych hospital. And I had kind of a road to Damascus sure. experience when I went... I think I want to really do this. And literally, till that moment, I didn't know. And at that moment, I went, okay, I'm going to do it. So I sat for my license, and it took six and a half years. This to, transition. This transition to become a licensed therapist in California. And it, it takes a long time because you need 3,000 clinical hours as an intern before you can even sit for the test. And you've been doing it for? Now I've been doing it about 29 years. Wow. I've been in private practice. So I, I retired from film and television. And, but uh, clearly you didn't retire from writing. But I didn't retire from writing. And it's funny because when I was at Pitt as a writing major, my goal was not film or TV. My mm -hmm. goal was to be a novelist. And so once I started my practice, and after I had built my private practice up, I thought, well, now I can start writing prose again. And so I started and it took a while, but I, I had always wanted to write a, a series of mysteries because I'm a big mystery fan. And ever since I was 10 years old, really? and my dad brought me The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. I was sick in bed with the measles, I think, and he brought me this one of those hardback things where you crack it open and it smells so good and it was illustrated. And I'd never read a mystery before. And when I read Sherlock Holmes, I was hooked. I went, okay, this is great. And so I had always wanted to write a series of mysteries, and I always wanted to write about Pittsburgh. So it gave me the opportunity to do it. Jays! So that's how it happened. Living the dream! Oh, yeah. The, the other thing we should point out, though, is while in your therapy, you specialize in helping... Creative people. Well, because I was in show business for so long... My practice is primarily writers, actors, directors, <laughs> composers, people in the creative industry. Oh, and we know they're messed up. Well, they're no more messed up than anyone else. That, to me, always makes me crazy. Well, but wait a minute. A creative person, so much of... You don't think in part they're <laughs> creative because they're messed up? No. 
Really? I, I, well, I tell you, look at look at the ev- look at the clinical evidence. There's so much uh, research that's been done about this. Creative people have much less of a suicide rate or incarceration rate than lawyers, okay, dentists, I'm, okay, a psychiatrist. How about neurotic as opposed to psychotic? Okay, let me let me look at let me just put it this way: If you're a bricklayer and you're depressed and you're unhappy. It doesn't affect your job. You still can put put bricks in. If you're a creative person, your raw materials, your bricks, are your inner world. So creative people tend to talk about and write from their Their, inner experience. And so they write about their upset. I mean, look how many writers write about their depression. But they're or not, comedians. Or com- to, yeah, it's like uh, the, the creative people use all of their feelings inside. Right. And since I think everybody has operatic passions, but if you're a creative person, you talk about it. If you work at Walmart, you're less likely to talk about it. Or it, nobody's listening. Or nobody's listening. So, I, I, you know, if, if you, if you, I remember working one time uh, doing a group therapy with a group of lawyers, and they seemed to me as neurotic as any creative person I'd work with. But their persona that they present has to not okay. look like that. Gee, I think you turned me around. Well, so I, I think creative right. people, the difference is they talk and write about and exploit their feelings. It's part of their process. Right. In fact, if we read a writer who, or, or, or a painter or anyone whose work does not express their inner experience, it rarely relates to us. Emerson said that to know what's true for you in your private heart is true for everyone. Hmm. That is genius. And so the writers and actors and painters and directors who write and direct from their own obsessions, interests, or whatever, they're the ones who speak to all of us. But as a therapist, are your, your patients or clients or whatever you call them, are they more... I mean, articulate, perhaps, then. Well, I think so, I of, mean, for you, yeah. that's sort of a, you don't have to listen to somebody who's boring talking about their life. I'm very, very lucky yeah. in, that, in that creative people who seek therapeutic help tend to be interested in self-exploration. Right. And they're very articulate, often quite funny. Right. In fact, when I work with a lot of creative patients, I have to help them not try to entertain me and be use that gift they have had to protect themselves all their lives, yeah. which is to be funny or smart. Now or you sound like my therapist. Yeah, and so I always have to say you I don't have to be you on. You don't have to be on. You right. can you can just relax here and but not that perform. is their defense. That is, it's the primary defense, and remember, it's the defense that has worked for them. Right. If you were picked on as a kid and then you got funny. And so everyone thought you were a funny person. You're going to keep being funny. You betcha. Because that's your best defense mechanism. Right. So then you go to therapy and go, I don't know what to do. I feel sad, but everyone thinks I'm so funny. And then they'll be funny about how depressed they are. And I understand that. I used to write comedy. And right. the one thing I know about people who write comedy, we're mad and we're sad. <laughs> <laughs> we're grief. And there's grief and gruff, you know what I mean? I've never met a, f- a funny person who was a happy person, you know? And because the root of, of, of so much humor it's is pain. rage and it, pain. It pain. It's pain right. and rage. Right. And the re- when people say to me, gee, how could you write such dark stories? And my stories are, you know, psychological thrillers. Oh, my thrillers, God. And there's a lot of really intense, harrowing you know, things. I want to talk to you about that. Well, we can talk bit. about it All because right. that's where it goes. There's a reason I'm not on top of a building with a sniper rifle. You get it all out. I get here. it all out in my book. Yeah, but then you put it in my head. Well, that's and your I, problem. <laughs> Once you I put get, down your money, geez, that's your problem. I gotta tell you, I mean, how the hell? What what craziness is in your head that you can come up with these psychopaths? This guy. Yeah, he's the worst villain guy, I've ever written. I mean, I, he's the worst villain can, I've ever written. Oh my god! And he's so much fun. For me, he was so much fun to write. Not for me. Um, Because he was every dark thought feeling that I've ever had in my life. And early on in the book, if you remember, I say this was the most heroic, you know, Daniel writes that the books are written in the first person. And so when Rinaldi says this was the most horrible and harrowing experience of my life, I thought to myself, well, after five books, it better be damn harrowing. 
And so oh, I nice. went to the very edge of where my own darkness is uh, to write, especially the climax. The climax of the book is pretty intense. Um, uh, it, 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 but it's very exciting. And I've been so pleased. The reviews have been amazing. And they all talk about this villain, Sebastian Maddox. Oh, And he's God. a scary guy. He's oh, a my scary God. guy. Do you think somebody, I mean, so I'm a Pollyanna in this way. I think one of the ways I'm able to get up in the morning and live my life and have, you know, social interactions with other humans is because I refuse to acknowledge that there are people <laughs> like this. Yeah. I mean, is this really? Well, there is are. That, I mean, I, if you look at how many people like Ted Bundy or or uh, the BTK killer, there are a lot of Richard Ramirez. There are a lot of Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of really terrible people. The problem is there's such a minority that people who like crime fiction often think, oh, my God, every other person's a, you know, a killer. Well, no, they're not. What amazes me is we have billions of people on this planet. How few of them actually do damage to each other is what we should really think about. Because that's what I think about. Well, but doesn't television news and books like this uh, skew people's uh, sense of well, I think, that ratio? Of I think they can. I think they can. I think also, though, the cathartic value, which has been true since there's been theater and there's been literature, is to have the hero, as he does in Head Wounds, come out on top at the end well, and true. remind us that there is an antidote to evil, which is good people doing good. And I think that that's important for us because we feel, I think, through the media and through experiences in the news that we're being inundated with this kind of evil. And my feeling is actually if you look at, like, how many millions of people are in a city and there's five murders that year and people are all up in arms, really? Only five murders? It's amazing they're not all killing no, themselves. No, my understanding is, is that generally... Crime, Crime is on the way down. Way down. Yeah, it's way, um, way down. Yeah. And so people the media are living longer. That, yeah. I mean, if you, it, but you wouldn't know you it. You wouldn't know it from the media, but actually the, the growth in terms of humanity, humanism, progressivism around the world is actually in a positive direction. That's what I hear. Yeah, and, but it doesn't <laughs> like, feel like it. No. Because, see, if you go on the news and go, breaking news, nobody got killed That's today. Right. That's well, right. Well, no one's going to watch it. They're going to switch right. over to Shark Tank. That's right. Because at least there, somebody's in conflict. Well, but I, if, if I were a therapist, that is why I tell people, don't watch more than... An hour of news a day, or at the very most. And I don't even think you need to watch any. You could just read. Well, I, I think that it has been very bad for the sort of 24-7 oh. news that we get. And, and the reality is I remember the late Neil Postman in a wonderful book called Amusing Ourselves to Death yeah, right. made a very interesting point that like 200 years ago, news was your neighbor's barn burned down. So then you and a bunch of other people helped them rebuild the barn. You didn't know that the Boer War was happening on the other side of the planet. That's right. So news, even if it was bad, was something you could maybe rectify. And was accessible and understandable. It was understandable accessible and understandable. And, right. Now when we read, well, people are dying in Syria, you have the impotence of, I don't know what to do about it. What do I do? All I know is this is bad news that stresses me out. I feel terrible. Right. But I have no recourse. I don't know anyone in Syria. What am I supposed to do, fly to Syria? You know. So when you hear about a lot of news from all over the world about which you can do nothing, then it reinforces, as Postman points out, your sense of frustration and stress. And I think he's right about that. I, I don't doubt it for for a minute. Somebody asked me a question the other day, and I wondered what your answer would be. Um, I was mentioning that you were going to be on the show, and I was talking about your, your latest, Head Wounds, and uh, they said, well, should I start at the beginning? Should I read the first book? I said, well, there, 
I mean, ideally, I think you do. Well, but I, I, here's the way they, they're, they're all books. Each of the five books can be written. I mean, I'm sorry, can be read as standalone books. Right, right. Because if you need to know who someone is, I sort of explain in a paragraph who they are right. for people who may not know. The only reason, well, there's two reasons I'd like you to start from the beginning. Number one, I'd like you to buy all the books. <laughs> but number two, if you've come to know the characters as they change and evolve and their relationships change and evolve, in Head Wound, since a number of people who have been in the books from the very beginning are threatened, it means more to people That's who right. know them, That's right. who followed them in all five books. So when something bad's going to happen to Noah Fry, well, by the time you're at book five, you love Noah Fry. Oh, we got to talk about Noah. And yeah. so you don't want anything bad to happen to him. And so I think for head wounds, the people who have responded the most in terms of the, the, you know, the feedback I've been getting are people who really like the character of Harvey Blaylock, really like the character of Angie Villanova, really like the character of Noah Fry. So when they are at risk, yeah, it, means, it means so much That's more. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Noah. And uh, Margie Romero in her review, by the way, a rave review um, of the latest Head Wounds, says, Mr. Palumbo has invented a bar that would be fun to have in <laughs> Pittsburgh. I mean, usually you're just dealing with what is. Here. Yeah, yeah. But you have this bar on a barge uh, run by Noah, uh, who is a former patient. Uh Tell, it is just wonderful. I well, want it there. Yeah, I, 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 I decided oh, to create a bar I'd want to go to. And it, it, it. what I did was, as I mentioned earlier, I worked at J&L Steel on 2nd Avenue. Oh, those mills are all gone now. So what I did was I put Noah's bar, I call it Noah's Ark, and it's a converted coal barge that's moored on 2nd on Avenue with, on the Monongahela River. Right. And so it still has like portholes and hanging tar paper and stuff. And the guy running the bar, Noah Fry, is a patient, a former patient of Daniel's from years and years before at a private psychiatric hospital. And he's Noah's, he's, he's Daniel's best friend, and he is a paranoid schizophrenic. And so without his medication, He's susceptible to delusions and hallucinations, and the delusions are persecutory uh, uh, in the sense that he, that self-loathing that that delusion has. In, in his case, he has, and, and this is based on uh, a patient I had at a psychiatric hospital when I worked there for three years. I had a patient who had a crucifixion obsession, and his desire was to be, to be crucified. crucified. And so that's Noah's delusion, and his meds keep that at bay. But the funny thing about Noah, he's a very talented jazz musician, and he functioned in, in the book as what the indigenous people call crazy wisdom. He's crazy, but he's smart. And, I mean, he says something, for example, in Head Wounds that I, I, I just love. There, he, he talks about how the people who come to his bar, they sit at the counter all day, all night long and complain about what they should have done and the mistakes they made and they wish they lived here or they wish they'd married someone else. And he says to Daniel at some point, you know what the problem is? You know why nobody's happy? Everybody thinks the party's happening somewhere else. And I thought that's the kind of thing a crazy person with wisdom would say. That's right. And so... When he talks to Daniel, he's often wiser than Daniel is because Daniel is so has blinders on. If somebody's in trouble or traumatized, whatever, he has a big hero complex because he still thinks he has to That's earn. That's from the, the guilt. From the, the guilt, right. Guilt, and right. in fact, as I say in Head Wounds, he didn't understand his luck in surviving and that he had been trying to earn that luck ever since. So one of the reasons he throws himself into dangerous situations to to the chagrin of his friends and colleagues, is he does have a little bit of a hero complex. Well, he has to prove that and he, he deserves he deserves to live. Right. And so Daniel Noah Fry is always saying to him, "You don't have to prove anything. It's okay. It's so nice to see a big story on the news and you're not in it." And so uh, he's sort of the stabilizing force. And of course, the irony is he's crazy. Are therapists, as you, are you as a therapist ever helped by the insights of your Oh, all client? the time. Okay. I, I think the, the, the 
patient therapist relationship is a two-way dynamic. I think any therapist who assumes he or she has a lock on how to live life is a therapist you don't want to have anything to do with. I think we're all broken and a therapist hopefully can help you have some tools to deal with how you're broken and the therapist goes to see someone to get tools for how he or she is broken and that's what it's about and uh, my, my, one of my big pet peeves is therapists who rely too much on diagnostic labels as opposed to seeing each person as an individual. I mean, I, well, I, have, I think that's true of medicine in general. Yeah, but yeah, my, my yeah. feeling is I have no problem, you know, for us to have a common vocabulary so all of us clinical geniuses can talk to each other. But saying that someone is bipolar doesn't tell me who they are. Exactly. It's just a way for you to label behavior in a way that's, that's, that's understandable and can be conveyed to another professional. But to think of that person, instead of calling him George in your head, you think, oh, my 3 o'clock, my bipolar's bipolar. coming. If your bipolar's coming, you shouldn't be this person's therapist. It should be, oh, George is coming. It should be the person because you're a person. And you and your patient co-create the therapy. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that as a res I mean, that uh, comes from a very, uh, my, my, my tendency, my theoretical position is pretty experiential, it's pretty humanistic. I don't assume I know more about what's inside the patient than they do. The only thing I can do is talk to them about, here's what they're presenting, here's what I think about what they're presenting. I know this is causing them pain because they give how they're feeling a particular meaning. And I'm saying let's challenge what that meaning is. Geez, I bet you're a good therapist. Well, I, I, I bet you I, are. I, you know, people come and see me. So, yeah, um, man. You know, but labeling, I don't know, while you were talking about how, oh, my bipolar is coming in it, too, I, I thought of the first time I saw in a sports page that some stealer, so-and-so, is out with a groin. I... <laughs> Out with a groin. I yeah. thought, what? He couldn't find a, a, a nice, you know, nice woman to, to go out with. Out with a groin. Out with an. A, and I, 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 that annoyed me so much. But I, yeah, that that's where my head went. I don't know what that means. Let's go to the emails. Gigi says, just tuned in. So delighted to again hear Dennis Palumbo on your show. I love hearing you guys talk. I love his books. Thank you for brightening the day for a change, right? Well, thank you so much. I, I, <laughs> boy, that's really nice. That and nice. Uh, your check is in the mail. Uh, Mike in D.C., can you ask Jim? Not Jim. I screw his name up all the time, but it ain't Jim. That much I know. It's Dennis. About his experience with the musical, My Favorite Year. And were you happy with the outcome? I didn't even know there was. Yeah, that's because it closed in four <laughs> weeks. Um, that's an interesting experience. I had actually nothing to do with the musical. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, they had to come to me and make, uh, you know, uh, a deal because uh, I have the sole story credit on my favorite year. So I have what's called separated rights. I can't, I don't own the movie, so I can't stop them if they want to make it a cartoon. But they have to pay me. And so we made a deal. And then the... F so you did make some money off this I, thing. I still do. Uh, what happened is they, the musical was actually, it was a big attempt, a nice attempt, and, and it was at Kennedy Center. I went to see it. My wife and I went, and it ran for about four or five weeks. Um, I, I don't think it was very successful, and there are a couple reasons for that, which I don't think I want to go into, but just aesthetically, I have some ideas as why it might not have gone so well. And I think Tim Curry's a wonderful actor. I think he was miscast. Oh, so he was in the Peter he, O'Toole role. He was in role. the Peter O'Toole role. He's a wonderful actor. I think in this case he was miscast. Um, but it, it, it only ran for five or six weeks, like I said. But for some reason, high schools and community theaters around the world... Oh, this is why you're still making are, money. ...are doing it. And so it's so terrific to get these these royalty checks. And they have photos of, like, high school kids oh, with, like, wow. the, the Alan Swan outfit on, uh -huh. you know. And they're 16 years old. You know oh, how I mean? cute. And so I love those photos oh, from cute. all these high schools and community theaters all over the world that put on the musical of My Favorite Year. 
How wonderful. So there's, yeah. who wrote this song? I mean, there's, so there's this, songs? I, I can't, yeah. There's, Are they any good, any of them? I, I, for me, again, I, I don't want to talk okay, too much okay, aesthetically, right, yeah. but I, I, I think it's important to know that the people who wrote the musical, who, the music, whose names I forgot, unfortunately, went on to write their next musical called Once on an Island, or Once an Island, that well, became a gigantic Broadway success. And man, that is done by high schools, left, right, yeah. so, I So uh, I, I was... Just, you know how you're in the lane uh, in traffic and one person gets right in front of you and then they go through the light and you're at the red yes, light? Yes, happens all the time. Well, somehow this, my musical missed the light. Yeah. And their next musical was a gigantic hit. And so, right. but, but yeah, so I had nothing, I didn't write a word of it. I had nothing to do with it at all. Okay. I'm, I'm moving. I just noticed a, uh, something from Margie's, uh, review it says he brands the pittsburgh area that's you as vaguely racist quote where ethnic pride and ethnic prejudice lived side by side yeah i thought i was going to get a little comment about that um i, oh, I listen i wouldn't say vaguely yeah uh, no um i i think it's uh this is a very racist area extremely racist well I don't think it's it's uh, particular to Pittsburgh. I don't think it's no, particular. Let's say, have we learned that I this was is going not to say, a if southern, anything, northern, or yeah. anything, or urban, rural? It, it, it is the, everywhere. If the Barack Obama presidency <laughs> proved anything, oh, it's that we're not post-racial. We're actually much more racist than we actually thought. Oh, my God. And if you look at, like, Roy Moore's election, he got 75% of the white vote. And apparently pedophilia doesn't disqualify you as long as you're a white person. So I, I think I have, you know, so much love for Pittsburgh. And, and anyone who reads the books can feel it in the books. Yep. But I do talk about the, 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 what I call uh, uh, the ethnic pride and ethnic, ethnic prejudice that do live side by side. If you don't recognize it, then you're, I'm sorry, blind. Well, you know, I don't feel like my point of view on anything is the point of view. It's just my point of view. And if you can love something the way I love the city and still be aware of things that need work. I well, but if you can love at all. I mean, I, yeah. what's perfect? There's not a, anyone we love is not a perfect person. That's any, right. But any city we love is not perfect. I love Pittsburgh. I th You left. I threw my lot in. With well, I left because they don't make film and television in Pittsburgh. They, they do, do now, but they didn't yeah. 45 years ago no, when I didn't. left. They Believe didn't. me, they, they sure didn't. as heck didn't. And uh, now you could actually, uh, uh, who's that you, guy, Carl Kurlander? I mean, they're doing stuff here all the time. Uh, Pittsburgh, everybody shoots movies here, too, because the tax breaks oh, are just, so good. Oh, it's I ridiculous. Mean, it's, it is ridiculous. And you when you think of uh, This Is Us. Uh, Jack Reacher, Unstoppable, all these, you know, films and TV shows are well, shot. Mindhunter, they're all shot in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Pittsburghers will tell you, I mean, especially those of us, I think, downtown. I mean, it's every other minute. Yeah, you can't, yeah. I mean, they're, they're shooting something. Yeah, they shot The Dark Knight Rises here, too. The alley right next door to this building uh -huh. is where that, and Smithfield. They, this is where the big chase scene oh, really? happens. And what's funny is, again, if you know the city... They're chasing and chasing. They're going up Smithfield, back Smithfield, which makes no sense yeah, at all. Yeah. You see storefronts that you know, and you think, wait a minute. I mean, Wiener World, which is, you know, right here, that, that's in. And so is the, the parking uh, ramp uh, opposite. And it, it is fun. It is fun to see. Yeah, there are people, definitely movies are happening here. Oh, gosh. So, listen, I got to ask you. I'm really sorry. But has your business ticked up a little bit since Donald Trump's been president? I mean, he's been good for uh, he's. I, listen, I'm on the ACLU board. It's been good for us, mm -hmm. in a way. Uh, I'm on a Planned Parenthood board. He's been good for us, in a way. Uh, I, you know, it's funny to be yeah. honest with you. Um, I've been very fortunate. Uh, I, I, my practice has been pretty steady and full for quite a while be, because the people in the entertainment business uh, talk uh, about you. Talk know about me yeah. so but ever since the election there's been a, a kind of a sea change in the work 
in the sense that the the Trump administration is kind of a background hum right. to everything. everything. So no matter what a patient is going through, like a divorce or their kids in rehab or their series didn't get picked up, for the first 10 minutes they have to talk about the latest thing they're outraged about. True. It's like they have to do it. Well, that went on for about a year, and now there's such – it's what I call revelation burnout. It's just – or exhaustion. And, and they're just exhausted. So now yeah. people come in and they go, I don't even want to talk about it. And and I know what they're talking about. We don't even have to say the word Trump. <laughs> they just come in and go, I know. Did you see? And I go, yeah. And they go, I don't want to. I know. Talk about it. And we go right into their personal issues or right into their career problems or whatever. With just the acknowledgement that we're in a little bubble outside of which we have the strangest, inexplicable administration in the history of modern times. Yeah. And so we just act like we don't. And one of the things that occurred to me early after the election when so many people would come in and spend literally <laughs> – half hour of the 50 minutes talking about when they're supposed upset. to be yeah. helping them yeah and i finally Trump. said look uh, you're giving him that too yeah you're giving think him, of the power you're, you're giving giving him, him yeah. the power to so infiltrate your inner world that you can't even deal with your own stuff don't give him that too right and i understood it because i was halfway through head wounds and i just stopped writing because i was thinking about it all the time and then i told myself don't give him that. What are you give him your novel? What the heck's that? See? Well, and I told you I took February off. I had to take it off because I had he had taken over. Well, because you my talk life. about it here and every I, day. And I I thought I don't yeah. know if I can keep yeah. doing this because I I felt like um Donald Trump is killing me. Well, you know, they often tell therapists watch out for empathy burnout. I well, bet. the same thing is true I think for revelation burnout. What I, you know, we're what did he say this time? What did what happened this time? What you know, and and then you start you know looking at the fact that he's appointed people to head departments who are the enemies of the missions of each of those departments. That's absolutely. True. So you say it's not even Donald Trump; it's that the stuff he's unraveling will take years to reconstruct if they're reconstructed. And so once you open up like national parks for resources, you're not going to like close them again. I mean, so. I, you know, we have a Department of Education well, head who doesn't like education. Apparently, it's the enemy. So yeah. I, I, I just I'm so baffled by it. Um, and it doesn't feel like a left wing or right wing or conservative or liberal. It feels so inexplicable. What's your advice? I, I, I keep telling after I came back with my my head in a better place. I told people, I, I, I think I did tell you, so, that um, I'm going to have to, you know, not react as, not be as reactive as I've, I've been, or I can't do well, this Well, if you're anymore. diabetic, if you're diabetic, you reduce your sugar intake. Right. It's better for your health. I think it, for your mental health, reduce your news intake, particularly because the news tends to glamorize the conflicts between people, the, it, the, the entertainment part of the news. Right. And it's not just Fox News. It's CNN, Everybody. It's MSNBC. Everybody's got a team. It's it, like you're rooting for the Rams as opposed to rooting for the Eagles. And the reality of that is that it keeps you feeling as though nothing's going to hold. The center isn't going to hold. We're all going to hell in a handbasket. I had a patient who took a hike on Topanga. Uh, uh, canyon in Los Angeles and I said did you enjoy the hike he said yeah I told myself in case of a bomb a no a war with North Korea this was probably the last hike I'd ever take and I thought oh my god that's not enjoying the hike. no that's not enjoying the hike so what I suggest to people is really seriously just you know, like you have to cut down on carbs cut down on the news just limit yourself to how much news Thank you. You, you, can, you can watch and listen to. How do you feel about um, uh, certain uh, people in your profession and even the psychoanalytic <laughs> profession and uh, sort of going against what has been the rule, which is you don't diagnose somebody that you don't see, and you certainly don't do this in a public fashion. And there are a lot of pretty high-up, 
character saying this is different. I know. And this guy is a raging narcissist and he's dangerous. Well, here's my feeling about that. I apps, I'm very old-fashioned about this. I don't believe you interpret, diagnose, or talk about someone you've never met, let alone treated. True. You shouldn't talk about them anyway. Even if a part of me clinically kind of agrees with these assessments, it's not my place to do that. And I think it's dangerous because then people start using terminology that they don't really understand. Um, and, and I think it, it, it sort of um, creates a bad precedent. I, I just don't feel if I were someone watching one of these psychologists or psychiatrists interpret psychologically or make a clinical diagnosis of a public figure from a president on down, I would think to myself, well, gosh, I guess there isn't any confidentiality when you go to therapy. Or they can all sit around and talk about you. That's right. I mean, as much as I love The Sopranos, the second to the last episode of The Sopranos, for anyone who saw that episode, there was a bunch of psychiatrists, including uh, the one played by Lorraine Bracco, who, who was, was Tony who, who Tony's, and but, her psychiatrist, played by Peter Bogdanovich, and there was a dinner party with a bunch of psychiatrists all guessing who each other's patients were. And I was flabbergasted because that kind of dinner party does not exist. Nobody does that. And so anything that reinforces the idea that confidentiality is kind of loose or that if you have a, a degree, you can diagnose someone you've never met or never seen, I think is a very bad precedent. Um, I, I just, you know, I think it's really a problem. And I think I see people using terminology all the time. The thing that gets me now are people will go, like, oh, did you see Bob? He's so on the spectrum. Oh, it's on like, the spectrum. It's oh, like, man. What? You what, you're an expert now on autism? How did that happen? And so I, I'm, I'm really kind of an old stick in the mud okay, about, well, about clinical uh, propriety. I just think there's no propriety in uh, clinical professionals going on television and making pronouncements about the mental health of uh, political figures. There was a, some woman, academic, has written some kind of a study or a book in which she contends, and I see where you'd get to this point, that libertarians, people who are libertarians, are on the spectrum. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. Okay. I, mean, I, 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 I remember I years and years ago <laughs> when, when uh, uh, the idea of, of being codependent was very big, being about a oh, codependent. Every, yeah, yeah. And I remember hearing on the radio, this goes back 30 years, I think, some psychologists going, well, actually, I believe 98% of Americans are codependent. And I thought to myself, that's like saying 90% of Americans walk around on two feet. Yeah. I mean, if it's that many people, it's, it's not, not a diagno right. diagnosis. That is meaningless. You know, it's like they, it's like 98% of Americans see through their eyes. I mean, I don't know what that means. And so we have to be very careful when diagnostic categories, uh, and I think, for example, bipolar's turning into one of those, where everyone's talking about how bipolar they are or how bipolar someone else is. And I'm there, why, because they were cranky this morning or because they had a stupid idea last week? Uh, so... Again, I, I know I'm very hidebound about this stuff, but I just think people should be very careful, including clinicians, about using diagnostic labels. Do you think there's overdiagnoses uh, going on of like... Uh, of course there are. I like mean, constantly. We'll, we'll look at us as therapists, for example. If a patient comes early, he's anxious. If a patient <laughs> comes late, he's resistant. And if he comes on time, he's obsessive. Oh, for God's sake. So, so you're screwed. So you're I mean, screwed no, in I any way. Any, there's, there's, no <laughs> way to, there's no way to come to therapy that doesn't have a diagnostic interpretation to it. Oh, my God. Actually, I'm seeing my therapist at 4 o'clock. I wonder you go. Which, which one of those... Oh, I do. Let me see. If you That's show up funny. at four, she'll go, oh, uh, compulsive. She's showing some, yeah. Yeah, compulsive, okay. right here on time. Oh, it's five after four? She doesn't want to come to therapy <laughs> today. And then you could win and go, yeah, the traffic was really bad, and the therapist thinking, uh-huh, uh -huh, resistance. Sure. Yeah, resistance. Oh, God. Isn't that funny? Sort of. Yeah. It's sort of funny without the ha-ha part. Oh, my God. So 
Unfortunately, he's not going to tell us the names of his clients. No, um, I can't patients. do that. No. Unfortunately, Must no. Must be something. I remember one but, time I was on a show, and someone said, could you tell me the name of patients who are no longer with you? And I went, no. <laughs> no. And then, then he said, Dad? could you give me their initials? And I <laughs> said, No. no. Isn't that something? Uh, I know. It's, it's really something. The first, uh, when I wrote, I wrote a book called uh, Writing from the Inside Out, which is a book about the psychological issues that writers deal with. And uh, uh, someone, an editor from, um, what's that, Parade Magazine called and said, we're going to talk about your book. We're going to make your book a bestseller. And so I talked to her and stuff. And then she came back and said, my boss needs to know the name of some of these patients. And I said, well, I can't do that. And she said, well, then we can't run your story because we don't care about you. We care about the people you see. <laughs> yes, that's a great journalistic organ yeah. parade. And so magazine. I went, okay. And so I told my agent because he was crestfallen. He said, oh, if we were in Parade Magazine, we'd sell a zillion <laughs> copies. I said, yeah, but I'm not going to say who anybody's name no, is. of course not. And so he went, oh. It was it was uh, one of my my little brushes with fame. So I've got to let people know that um, that you're popping up all over town today, and uh, in part it says actually tomorrow there's a free mystery writing workshop. Well, there's two of them today when? today at twelve thirty. Is that going to be is the a same free time? mystery? I'm going to present oh, a free mystery writing workshop at the Pitt University campus store. So I'll do that free workshop and then do a book signing. Okay. And then tonight at the Mystery Lovers Bookshop in, in uh, um, Oakmont, I'm just going to do a signing. And then tomorrow at the Monroeville Public Library, I'm going to do another mystery writing workshop and signing. And that's from 1 to 2.30. That's from 1 to 2.30. And, uh, mystery Lovers tonight is at 7. And 12.30. And 12.30 today. today. Yeah, in a couple hours, I'm going to be at, at the, the Pitt Campus University Pitt um, bookstore. bookstore on Forbes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, I mean, in those, so you get... Well, my feeling is for people who want to write mysteries, they're often intimidated because they think, well, I don't know how to write great plots or I don't know how to construct mysteries. And the reality is most people read crime stories because they're interested in the stakes of the characters, in being, in, in being involved in their lives. Henry James said, plot is character under stress. And one of the things that I do in my, my uh, Daniel Rinaldi novels is I lean toward characterization and suspense. And you don't have to be Agatha Christie to write mystery novels. You really need to get the reader to relate to the characters. If you like, for example, Michael Connelly's uh, Harry Bosch novels, I love those novels. He's written about 20 of them. I couldn't tell you the plot of any one of them. I just want to hang with Harry Bosch, you know? And I think that that's the thing that makes us uh, uh, fans of a book series or a television series. I mean, if you look at Law & Order SVU, it's been on for 20 seasons. And it's because we like Mariska Hargitay or we like the other detectives and, and we want to see them get the bad guy. But it's very hard to remember what the clue was that That's got the true. bad guy last week. There needs to be one, but it's not the prime reason we watch. And in, in mystery series, there, it's not books. It's not the prime it's the reason characters, then. It's the characters. I mean, and look their at, development. And their development. Them. Look at the, the late Sue Grafton with her Kinsey Milhone novels. She's written 25 of them. And most people could not tell you the plot of right. each of those books. They just want to hang out with Kinsey Milhone. Who wouldn't? <laughs> and so I think that that is one of the things I'm going to emphasize in the workshop is to use who you are and what matters to you and then make the stakes very big, make the suspense very big, and put one or two clues in. Not a million, one or two. And if you're the kind of person that likes puzzles, make your story more puzzle or plot-oriented. If you're the kind of person who likes characters, make your story more character-oriented. And I think that if you work with who you are, you'll have a much better chance of connecting to your reader. Do you always do do they have to have things plotted out or do you sometimes uh 
sort of learn yourself as you're writing where this is going to go? Do you have to know where you're going to end up uh, before you start? There's many different ways to do it. Um, I do not outline or plot. I never know where the books are going. I don't know who the victims are. I don't know who the bad guy is. Really? When no. You start? Yeah, cause what I, do you know when you start? Uh, what what you know? I know is what I want it to feel like or what I want to write about. Like once I knew about like it. Like with this. Yeah, with, with this. Once I, the only thing I knew was I wanted the villain. I wanted us to know who the villain was early on, which I've never done before. And I wanted it to be about erotomania, which I had read about. When I did my novel Night Terrors, it came because I read an article that said Night Terrors, which has primarily been a pediatric diagnosis, is being diagnosed more and more in adults because adults are more stressed. Well, I thought, well, then who would have more Night Terrors than an FBI profiler uh, who spent yeah. 20 years sitting across the desk from the worst people in the world? All I knew was that it was going to be about an adult and it was going to be an FBI profiler with Night Terrors. But I didn't know the plot. I never do. And part of the fun for me, because I'd rather write than think. And so if the fun for me is just to follow my nose. And if I'm surprised, I figure the reader will be surprised. Now, I'll be honest, that's a very labor-intensive way to write, because you end up having to rewrite a lot. I bet you, you write yourself into I write myself corners into corners all the time. And then when I finally, about page 200, go, okay, the bad guy's this guy, I have to go back and rewrite and seed in a lot of you know red herrings and stuff so the plotting work usually happens in the second draft you know i i tend to just follow my nose wait a minute though red yeah. herrings yeah so you got to have red herrings oh, which you, are to throw me the the, yeah, the, the reader the yeah, reader is off. to throw you off to make you think x person did it when in fact y person did it yeah but those people who read these things all the time they recognize a red herring when they see it, don't they? Well, that's they? the funny thing. When you're a very veteran mystery reader, yeah. like I am, because I've read thousands, I know the first person who's who looks is guilty never. is never the, guil the right. guilty one. And one of the things that I admire about some of the early Agatha Christie novels is she turns that on its head. She'll have the person who looks guilty actually, end actually up being... be guilty because wow. the reader goes, well, it can't be her. There she looks go. too guilty. And so you go all the way away from it, and you come back and go, oh, my God, it was her. For God's sake. Yeah, yeah. I always like that. You haven't ever done that. No, I've never done that. And, in fact, as I said, even though my books tend to be described as thrillers, they're always whodunits as well, except for Head Wounds. It's the first book where I said who the bad guy was very early on. So it's not a whodunit, it no. is a it, thriller. It's a straight-ahead thriller. It's a cat-and-mouse game between the villain who we meet fairly early on oh. and the, and the oh. hero, Daniel. And he's the scariest villain I've ever written. Um, one of the greatest compliments. Talk about night terrors. Did yeah. you have night terrors when you were reading, writing right, No. Writing it, no. Uh, uh, it, it, got all, it was such a cathartic experience for me to say, okay, what would be the worst thing he could do in this situation? And so I would think of it. And uh, one of the greatest compliments I've ever gotten was uh, from a mystery writer I love, Thomas Perry, who uh, is a big Edgar winner writing, uh, Edgar Award winning writer. And he wrote a nice blurb for this book and was interviewed a couple months later on the best books he'd read recently. He mentioned Head Wounds and wow. said, I'm still haunted by the villain of this book. No, he's I just... can't get him out of my mind. No. <laughs> and so I thought, well, good job. <laughs> yeah, really. No, this is the worst. It's the worst person I've ever written. There's no question. Well, maybe that's why you're having trouble mo uh, have writing another. Well, yeah, I, I, and whatever I write next, even my editor said, could we just calm it down for the yeah. next one? It's just so. So this is the book, Head Wounds. And go to a bookstore and buy it. Get up off yeah. your couch. Yes. Don't or, go to Amazon, for God's sake. Although, you can, obviously, you yeah, can. You can buy it through Amazon. You can buy it through the publisher, Poison Pen Press. I also recommend going to my website, uh, DennisPalumbo.com, because there's a lot of articles about writing. There's all the reviews of all my books. And so if you're on the fence about whether this is the kind of uh, series you want to read, uh, I, would, I would go to my website, and you can make a determination then. All right.
He's at the Pitt Bookstore in an hour and a half. He's uh, at Mystery Lover's Bookshop in Oakmont at 7 tonight. Yep. And he's at the Monroeville Public Library at 1, one till 2.30 uh, tomorrow. By the time I leave, people in Pittsburgh are going to be sick of me. No, no, we're never sick of you. Well, I hope you keep writing because I love these annual visits. Well, I love coming here, Lynn. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Dennis Palumbo. Head wounds, the most uh, recent. Thank you so much. I just love you. And you guys, I want to leave you with two words. John Bolton! Ah! (laughs) Okay, bye. Have a nice weekend. (laughs) Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.